Chapter 8 of Unto Caesar. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrea. Unto Caesar. Chapter 8. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Proverbs 16.33. And even thus did the mighty empire hurry headlong to its fall, with shouts of joy and cries of exultation, with triumphal processions, with music, with games, and with flowers. The Caesar had returned from Germany, and Gaul, having played his part of mountebank upon the arena of the world, eaten up with senseless and cynical vanity, Caius Julius Caesar Caligula desired to be the Caesar of his army, as he was princeps and imperator, high pontiff and supreme dictator of the empire. But as there was no war to conduct, no rebellion to subdue, he had invented a war and harassed the barbarians who had no thought save that of peace. He stage-managed conspiracies and midnight attacks, drilling his own soldiers into acting the parts of malcontents, of escaped prisoners, of bloodthirsty barbarians, while he himself, as chief actor in the play, vanquished the mock foes and took from them mock spoils of war. Then he upbraided Rome for her inertia, well, see, the emperor confronted dangers and endured hardships for her sake. His letters, full of glowing accounts of his supposed prowess, of the ferocity of the enemy, of the fruits of victory snatched at the cost of innumerable sacrifices, were solemnly read to the assembled senators in the Temple of Mars, and to a vast concourse of people gathered in the Forum. They listened to these letters with awe and reverence, proud of the valour of their Caesar, rejoicing in the continued glory of the mightiest empire of the world, their own empire, which they, the masters of the earth and of the sea, had made under the guidance of rulers, such as he who even now was returning laurel-laden and victory-crowned from Germany. And the triumphal procession was begun. First came the galley in which Caligula was said to have crossed the ocean for the purpose of subduing some rebel British princes, but in which he, in verity, had spent some pleasant days fishing in a bay. It was brought back to Rome in the solemn state by land, right across the country of the Alamanni, and carried the whole of the way by sixteen stalwart barbarians, supposed prisoners of war. The galley was received with imperial honours, as if it had been a human creature, the very person of the Caesar. In the presence of a huge and enthusiastic crowd, it was taken to the Temple of Mars, when the pontiffs, attired in their festal robes, dedicated it with solemn ritual to the god of war, and finally deposited it in a specially constructed cradle, fashioned of citrus wood, with elaborate carvings and touches of gilding thereon, the whole resting upon a pedestal of African marble. Upon the next day, a procession of Gauls entered the city carrying helmets, which were filled with seashells. The men wore their hair long and unkempt, they were naked save for a goatskin tied across the torso with the hempen rope and their shins were encircled with leather bands. The helmets were said to have belonged to those of Caesar's soldiers who had lost their lives in the expedition against the Germans, and the seashells were a special tribute from the ocean to the gods of the capital. By Caesar's orders, the helmets were to be the objects of semi-divine honours in the memory of the illustrious dead. Thus the tragi comedy went on day after day. The plebes enjoying the pageants because they did not know that they were being fooled, the patricians looking on because they did not care. 
and now the imperial mountebank was coming home himself having ordered his triumph as he had stage managed his deeds of valour triumphal arches and street decorations flowers and processions he had ordained everything just as he wished it to be from the statue of the, every god in the temples of the capital and of the forum the bronze head had been knocked off by his orders and a likeness of his own head placed in substitution his intention was to receive divine homage and this the plebes who had been promised a succession of holidays with races games and combats was over ready to grant him the vestibule connecting his palace with the temple of castor had been completed in his absence and he wished to pass surreptitiously from his own apartments to the very niche of the idol which was in full view of the forum and there to show himself to the people even whilst a sacrifice was offered to him as to a god to all this senseless display of egregious vanity the obsequiousness of the senators and the careless frivolity of the plebes easily lent itself nor did any one demur at the decree which came from the absent hero that he should in the future be styled the father of the armies the greatest and best of caesars all thought of dignity was dead in these descendants of the great people who had made the empire they had long ago sold their birthright of valour and of honour for the pottage of luxury and the favours of a tyrannical madman what cared they if after they had feasted and shouted themselves hoarse in praise of a deified brute the ruins of rome came crashing down over their graves what cared they if in far-off barbaric lands the goths and huns were already wetting their steel only a few among the more dignified senators a few among the more sober praetorian tribunes revolted in their heart at this insane exhibition of egoism these perpetual outrages on common sense and dignity but they were few and the influence small and they were really too indolent too comfortable in their luxurious homes to do aught but accept what they had deemed inevitable the only men in rome who cared were the ambitious and the self-seekers and they cared not because of rome not because of the glory of the empire or the welfare of the land but because they saw in the very excess of the tyrant's misrule the best chance for their own supremacy and power foremost among these was chaos nepos the praetorian prefect all-powerful in the absence of the caesar well liked by the army so it was said some influential friends clung around him and also some malcontents those who are ever on the spot when destruction is to be accomplished ever ready to overthrow any government which does not happen to further their ambitions most of these men were assembled this night beneath the gilded roof of chaos nepos's house he had gathered all his friends round him had feasted them with good viands and costly wines with roasted peacocks from gaul and mullets come straight from the sea he had amused them with oriental dancers and egyptian acrobats and when they had eaten and drunk their fill he bade them good night and sent them home laden with gifts but his intimates remained behind pretending to leave with the others they lingered on in the atrium chatting of indifferent topics amongst themselves until all had gone whose presence would not be wanted in the conclave that was to take place there were now some forty of them in number rich patricians all of them their ages ranging from that of young Escanes, who was just twenty years old to that of marcus ancreus the elder who had turned sixty their combined wealth mayhap would have purchased every inhabited house in the entire civilized world or every slave who was ever put up in the market marcus ancreus they say 
could have pulled down every temple in the Forum, and rebuilt it at his own cost. And Philippus Decius, who was there, had recently spent the sum of fifty million sesters upon the building and equipment of his new villa at Herculeum. Young Hortensius Martius was there, too, he who was said to own more slaves than anyone else in Rome, and Augustus Valerio of the household of Caesar, who had once declared that he would give one hundred thousand uri for a secret poison that would defy detection. "'Why is not Taurus Antinor here this evening?' asked Marcus Ancreus, when this little group of privileged guests once more turned back toward the triclinium. "'I think that he will be here anon,' replied the host. "'I have sent him word that I desired speech with him on business of the state, and that I crave the honour of his company.' They all assembled at the head of the now deserted tables. The few slaves who had remained at the bidding of their master had redraped the couches and reset the crystal goblets of wine and the gold dishes with fresh fruit. The long narrow hall looked strangely mournful now that the noisy guests had departed, and the sweet-scented oil in the lamps had begun to burn low. The table, laden with empty jars, with broken goblets, and remnants of fruit and cakes, looked uninviting and even weird in its aspect of departed cheer. The couches beneath their tumbled draperies of richly dyed silk looked bedraggled and forlorn, whilst the stains of wine upon the fine white cloths looked like widening streams of blood. Under the shadows of elaborate carvings in the marble upwarved walls, ghost-like shadows flickered and danced as the smoke from the oil lamp wound its spiral curves upwards towards the gilded ceiling above. And in the great vases of priceless mirror roses and lilies and white turbo roses, the spoils of costly glass houses were slowly drooping in the heavy atmosphere. The whole room, despite its rich hangings and gilded pillars, wore a curious air of desolation and of gloom. Mayhap Caius Nepos himself was conscious of this, for as he followed his guests from out the atrium, he gave three loud claps with his hands, and a troop of young girls came in carrying bunches of fresh flowers and some newly filled lamps. These they placed at the head of the table, there where the couches surrounding it were draped with crimson silk and soft downy cushions, well shaken up, once more called to rest and good cheer. "'I pray you all take your places,' said the host pleasantly, "'and let us resume our supper.' He gave a sign to a swarthy-looking slave, who, clad all in white, was presiding at a gorgeous buffet carved of solid citrus wood, which, despite the fact that supper had just been served to two hundred guests, was once more groaning under the weight of mammoth dishes filled with the most complicated products of culinary art. The slave, at his master's sign, touched a silver gong, and half a dozen henchmen in linen tunics brought in the steaming dishes fresh from the kitchens. The carver set to, and attacked with long sharp knife the gigantic capons, which one of the bearers had placed before him. He carved with quickness and dexterity, placing well-chosen morsels on the plates of massive gold, which young waiting-maids then carried to the guests. "'Will dismiss thy slaves before we talk?' asked Marcus Ancreus, the veteran in this small crowd. He himself had been silent for the past ten minutes, doing full justice to the second relay of Caius Nepos's hospitality. The waiting-maids were going round now, with gilt basins and cloths of fine white linen for the cleansing and drying of fingers between the courses. Others, in the meanwhile, filled the crystal goblets with red or white wine, as the guests desired. "'We can talk now,' said the host. "'These slaves will not heed us.' They, he added, nodding in the direction of the carver, 
and his half-dozen henchmen, are all deaf as well as mute, so we need have no fear of them. "'What treasures!' ejaculated young Eskines, with wandering eyes fixed upon his lucky host. "'Where didst thou get them, Caius Nepus? By the gods, I would I could get an army of deaf-mute slaves!' "'They are not easy to get,' rejoined the other, "'but I was mightily lucky in my find. I was at Serta, in Numidia, at the time when the dusky chief there, one named Hazim Ran, had made a haul of six malcontents who I understood had conspired against his authority. It seems that these rebels had a leader who had succeeded in escaping to his desert fastness, and whom Razim Ran greatly desired to capture. To gain this object he commanded the six prisoners to betray their leader. This they refused to do, whereupon the dusky prince ordered their ears to be cut off, and threatened them that unless they spoke on the morrow, their tongues would be cut off the next day. And if after that they still remained obdurate, their heads would go the way of their tongues and ears. Exclamations of horror greeted this gruesome tale, the relevancy of which no one had as yet perceived. But Caius Nepus, having pledged his friends in a draught of Sicilian wine, resumed. I, as an idle traveller from Rome, had been received by the dusky chieftain with marked deference, and I was greatly interested in the fate of the six men who proved so loyal to their leader. So I waited three days, and when their tongues and ears had been cut off and their heads were finally threatened, I offered to buy them for a sum sufficiently large to tempt the cupidity of Hazim Ran. And thus I had in my possession six men whose sense of loyalty had been splendidly proved and whose discretion henceforth would necessarily be absolute. This time a chorus of praise greeted the conclusion of the tale. The cynical calm with which it had been told, and the ferocious selfishness which it revealed, seemed in no way repellent to Caius Nepus's guests. A few pairs of indifferent eyes were levelled at the slaves, and that was all. And then Philippus Decius remarked coolly, So much for thy carvers and henchmen, O Caius Nepus, but thy waiting maids, are they deaf and dumb too? No, replied the host, but they come from foreign lands and do not understand our tongue. Then you all think that the next few days will be propitious for our schemes, here broke in young Eskines, who seemed the most eager amongst them all. Aye, said Caius Nepus, with a little good luck even to-morrow night might prove the best day. The Caesar is half frenzied now, gorged with his triumph, the mockery of which he does not seem to understand. He is more like a raving madman than ever, much more feeble in mind and body than before this insensate expedition to Germany. I suppose that there is no doubt as to the truth of the tales which are current about the expedition, quoth Marcus Ancreus, whose years rendered him more cautious than the others. No doubt whatever, rejoined the host, and some of the tales fall far short of the truth. There never was a real blow struck during the whole time that madman was away. He travelled from place to place in his litter, borne by eight men, and sent his soldiers ahead of him with sprays and buckets of water, that they should lay the dust along the road on which he would travel. At Treverorium, on the banks of the Rhine, he caused two hundred of his picked guard to dress up as barbarians, and to make feint to attack the camp at midnight. This they did with necessary shoutings and clashings of steel against steel. Then did the greatest and best of Caesars sally forth in full battle array, followed by a few of his most trusted men, and in the darkness there was heard more shouting and more clashings of steel, until Caligula returned in triumph at sunrise to his camp. He had passed hempen ropes round the necks of the mock barbarians, 
and ever after had them dragged in the wake of his litter, even as if they were prisoners of war. No doubt he had paid them well for acting such a farce. But was the army blind to all this folly? The Caesar only kept some five hundred picked men round him in his camp. These he bribed into acquiescence of all his mad pranks. The rest of the legions were some distance away all the time. They believed all that they were told. Mayhap they thought it wisest to believe. I know that in Belgica, on the shores of the ocean, began Augustus Falario after a while, but he was not allowed to proceed. Shouts of derision broke in upon the tale, followed by expressions of rage. What is the good of retailing further follies? said Caius Nepos at last. We all know that a madman, a vain, besotted fool, wields now the sceptre of Julius Caesar and of great Augustus. The numbers of his misdeeds are like the grains of sand on the seashore. His orgies have shamed our generation. His debauches are a disgrace upon the fame of Rome. Patricians, awake! The day hath come, the hour is close at hand. Tomorrow, mayhap, at the public games, a tumult amongst the people. It should be easy to rouse that. Then a well-edged dagger, and the empire is rid of the most hideous and loathsome tyrant that ever brutalized a nation and shamed an empire. Even as he spoke, and despite the deaf-mute slaves and the foreign girls, he lowered his voice until it sank to the merest whisper. Reclining upon the couches, with elbows buried in silken cushions, the others all stretched forward now, until two score of heads met in one continued circle, forehead to forehead, and ear to ear, whilst in the midst of them an oil-lamp flickered low, and lit up at fitful intervals the sober, callous faces, with the hard mouths and cruel, steely eyes. The slaves, those who had lost ears and tongue, and those who spoke no language save their own foreign one, had retreated to the far corners of the room, up against the columns of Phrygian marble or the hangings of Tyrian tapestries. Their great uncomprehending eyes were fixed on that compact group at the head of the table, where round the bowls of roses and of lilies and the goblets of wine, the future of the Empire of Rome was even now being discussed. The two moles can be easily provoked, said one of the guests presently, a young man whose black hair and dark eyes bespoke his oriental blood. The Caesar is certain to provoke it himself by some insane act of tyrannical folly. You must all remember how, two years ago, during the Megalesian games, he ordered the women of his retinue to descend into the arena and to engage the gladiators in combat. At this outrage, the discontent among the people nearly broke out into open revolt. It was thou, Caius Nepos, who checked the tumult then. The hour was not ripe, said the latter, and we were not allied. It will be different to-morrow. How will it be to-morrow? When the tumult is at its highest, he who has the surest hand shall strike the Caesar down. I, in the meanwhile. Then thou, Caius Nepos, art not certain of the sureness of thy hand? interposed Hortensius Martius, who hitherto had taken no active part in the discussion. He lay on a couch at some distance from his host, and had declined every morsel offered to him by the waiting maids but he had drunk over freely, and his good-looking young face looked flushed and dark beneath its wealth of curls. Unlike his usual self, he was ill-humoured and almost morose to-night, and there was a dark, glowering look in his eyes, as from time to time he cast furtive glances towards the door. "'Nay, good Hortensius,' said the host loftily, "'mine will be the greater part. The Praetorian Guard know and trust me. It will be my duty when the Caesar is attacked to keep them from rushing to his aid. The army is apt to forget a tyrant's crime, and to think of him only as a leader to be obeyed. 
but when the guard hear my voice, they will understand and will be true to me. "'Tis I will strike,' now broke in young Eskines, with all the enthusiasm of his years. The ardour of leadership glowed upon his face, and he seemed to challenge this small assembly to dispute his right to the foremost place in the great event of the morrow. But his challenge was not taken up. No one else seemed eager to dispute his wish. Somewhat sobered, he resumed more calmly. "'The Caesar hath much affection for me. I oft sat beside him in the circus, or at the games last year. The Augustus, too, like to have me beside them, to talk pleasing gossip in their ears. Twill be easiest for me, at a signal given, to strike with my dagger in the Caesar's throat. "'Thine shall be that glory, O Escanes, since thou dost will it so,' said Caius Nepos, not without a touch of irony. "'Directly the deed is done, the Praetorian Guard shall raise the cry.' The Caesar is dead. And it should be at once followed by another, said Marcus Ancreus the elder, by, Hail to thee, O mighty Caesar. Tis thou should raise that cry, O Caius Nepos, said Hortensius with a sarcastic curl of his lip. Oh, as to that, began the other with some hesitation. I, as to that, said Eschines hotly, if I slay the tyrant to-morrow with mine own hand, then I must know at least for whom I do the deed. There was silence after that. Everyone seemed absorbed in his own thoughts. Dreamy eyes gazed abstractedly in the crystal goblets, as if vainly trying to trace in its crimson depths the outline of an imperial sceptre. At last Caius Nepos spoke. Let us be rid of the tyrant first. The army will soon elect its new chief. And is it on the support of the army, O prefect, that thou dost base thine own hopes of supreme power? asked Hortensius whose ill-humour seemed to grow on him more and more. Nay, retorted Caius Nepos, I did not know that by so doing I was dashing thine. Silence, admonished Marcus Ancreus the elder. Are we children or slaves that we should wrangle thus? Have we met here in order to rid the empire of an abominable and bloodthirsty tyrant? Or are we mere vulgar conspirators, pursuing our own ends? There was no thought in our host's mind of supreme power, or Hortensius, nor in thine I'll vow. As for me, I care not for the Imperium, he added naively. It is difficult to content everyone, and a permanent consulship under our chosen Caesar were more to my liking. Bring forth thy tablets, O Caius Nepos, and we'll put the matter to the vote. There are not many of the house of Caesar fit to succeed the present madman, and our choice there will be limited. There is but Claudius, the brother of Germanicus, interposed the host curtly. "'Germanicus's brother, to succeed Germanicus's son,' said another with a contemptuous shrug of the shoulders. "'And he is as crazy as his nephew,' added Caius Nepos. "'He had not assembled his friends here to-night. "'He had not feasted them and loaded them with gifts "'with a view to passing the Imperium merely from one head to another. "'He was fairly sure of the support of the Praetorian Guard, "'whose prefect he was, and had counted on the adherence of these malcontents, "'who he hoped would look to him for future favours whilst raising him to supreme dignity. He liked not this talk of the family of Caesar, which took the attention of his closest adherents away from his own claim. "'The entire house of Caesar,' he said, "'is rotten to the core. There is not one member of it fit to rule.' "'But of a truth,' said prudent Ancreus, "'they have the foremost claim.' "'Then if that be the case,' broke in young Hortensius Martius suddenly, "'let us turn to the one member of the house of Caesar who is noble and pure.' exalted above all. "'There is none such,' said Caius Nepos hotly. 
"'Aye, there is one,' retorted the younger man. "'His name?' came loudly from every side. "'I spoke of a woman.' "'A woman!' and shouts of derisive laughter broke from every lip. Only Marcus Ancreus remained grave and thoughtful, and now he said, "'Dost perchance speak of dear Flavia Augusta?' "'Even of her,' replied Hortensius. Involuntarily at the name, the voice of the older man had assumed a respectful tone, and all around the vulgar sneers and bitter mockery had died away, as if by magic contact with something hallowed and pure. Even Caius Nepus thought it wise to subdue his tone of contempt, and merely said curtly, "'A goddess of truth, but a woman cannot lead an army or rule an empire.' "'No,' rejoined Hortensius Martius, "'but a wise and virtuous woman can rule wisely and virtuously over the man whom she will choose for mate.' There was silence for a moment or two, whilst young Hortensius's glowing eyes swept questioningly over the assembly. Everyone there knew of his passion for the Augusta, a passion, in truth, shared by many of those who had the privilege of knowing her intimately, and strangely enough, though the proposal had so much daring in it, it met with but little opposition. "'Wouldst thou then suggest, O Hortensius Martius,' quoth Marcus Ancreus, the elder, after a slight pause, "'that the Augusta's husband be made Emperor of Rome?' "'Why not?' retorted the other simply. "'It is not a bad notion,' mused young Escanes, who thought himself high in the favour of Dia Flavia. An admirable one, assented Ancreus, for we must remember that Dia Flavia Augusta is of the true blood of the Caesars, the blood of the great Augustus, and there is none better, since she, as a woman, cannot rule men or lead an army. What more fitting than that her lord, whoever he might be, should receive the imperium through her hands? He might prove to be a more miserable creature than the Caligula himself, suggested Filario who was too ill-favoured to have the hopes of winning the proud and imperious beauty for himself. "'Nay, that were impossible,' asserted Hortensius hotly. "'The man whom Dia Flavia will favour will be a brave man, else he would not dare to woo her. He will be honourable and noble, else he could never win her.' "'Methinks that thou art right, O Hortensius,' added Ancreus, who had taken upon himself the role of a wise and prudent counsellor. "'And, moreover, he will be rich by virtue of the wealth which the Augusta will have as a marriage portion. Her money, merged with the state funds, would be of vast benefit to the land. And on his death and his sons and hers, a direct descendant of great Augustus would be the only fitting heir, concluded another. Meseems now, said Ancreus decisively, that we would solve a grave difficulty by accepting the suggestion made by Hortensius Martius. The Imperium, as is only just, would remain in the family of the great Augustus. We should have a brave, noble, and rich Caesar, whose virtuous and beautiful wife would wield beneficial influence over him, and for the present we should all be working for unselfish ends. Not one of us here present can say for a certainty whom the Augusta will choose for mate. Directly the tyrant is swept out of the way, we, who have brought about the great end, will ask her to make her choice. Thus our aims will have been pure and selfless, each one of us here will have risked all for the sake of the unknown. What say you, friends? Shall we pledge our loyalty to the man whom not one of us here can name this day? A man mayhap still unknown to us, the future lord of Dia Flavia Augusta, of the house of Caesar. The peroration seemed greatly to the liking of the assembled company. The thought that they would all be working with pure and selfless motives flattered these men egregious vanity. 
Vaguely every one of them hoped that all the others would believe in his unselfish aims, even whilst every one meant to work solely for his own ends. Hortensius Martius's proposal pleased, because it opened out such magnificent possibilities. The Imperium itself, which had seemed infinitely remote from so many, now appeared within reach of all. Anyone who was young, well-favoured, and of patrician birth might aspire to the hand of the Augusta, and not one of those who possessed at least two of those qualifications doubted his own ability to win. Raising himself to a more upright position, Marcus Ancreus the Elder, goblet in hand, looked round for approval on all the guests. The murmur of acquiescence was well-nigh general, and many there were who held their goblets to the waiting maids in order to have them filled and then drain them to the last dregs. But there were a few dissentient voices, chiefly among the less favoured who, like Philario, could hardly dare approach a beautiful woman with thoughts of wooing her. Caius Nepus had not taken up the pledge, nor had he taken any part in the discussion since Dea Flavia's name first passed the lips of young Hortensius. Indeed, as the latter seemed to lose his ill-humour and become flushed and excited with the approval of his friends, so did the host gradually become more and more morose and silent. Clearly the proposal to leave the matter of the choice of a Caesar in the hands of a woman was not to his liking. Though good-looking and still in the prime of life, he had never found favour with women, and Dea Flavia had often shown open contempt for him, and for the selfish ambition which moved his every action, and which he was at no pains to conceal. It was easy to see by the glowering look on his face that the meeting this night had not turned out as he had wished. "'We cannot decide this matter otherwise than by vote,' said one of the guests, when the murmurs of approval and those of dissent had equally died down. "'Thou art right, O friend,' assented Ancreus. "'And I pray thee, Caius Nepus, order thy slaves to bring us the tablets, and let each man record his vote according to his will. Caius Nepus could find no objection to this, even though the question of voting was in no way to his liking. He had a vague hope, mayhap, that by gaining time he might succeed in sowing seeds of discord amongst those who had been so ready to accede to the new proposal. Any moment, even now, a chance word spoken, a trifling incident, an incipient quarrel might sway these men and bring them back to their allegiance to himself. He had been so sure of their support. The banquet this night had been destined to set the seal to their fealty and to cement their friendship. It was more than exasperating that the suggestion of a young fool should have caused them to swerve from their promised adherence. For the moment, however, he could not help but acquiesce outwardly in the wish of the majority. After an imperceptible moment of hesitation, he called to one of his deaf-mute slaves and made him understand by signs that he wanted forty wax tablets prepared and brought hither with forty stylets wherewith to write. Then he cheerily bade his guests once more to eat and drink and to make merry. And it was characteristic of these strange products of a decadent age, that in the midst of grave discussions wherein their own lives and the future aggrandizement were at stake, these men were quite ready to respond to their host's invitation, and momentarily to forget their own ambitious schemes in the enjoyment of epicurean delights. Wine and fruit were once more handed round. Both were excellent, and during a brief interval mighty issues were set aside, and conversation became more general and more free. The pageant of games and combats, which was to last for over thirty days in honour of the deification of Caligula and his safe return from Germany, became the subject of eager talk. There had been rumours of a remarkable load of African lions arrived in the Tiber a day or two ago, which were to make a gorgeous spectacle in the arena pitted against some tigers from Numidia. There was also talk of a novelty in the shape of crocodiles who were said to fight with great cunning and power 
against a pack of hyenas from the desert. Then there would be the chariot races and gladiatorial combats. Heavy betting on these events had been in progress for some time all over the city amongst the wealthy patricians, as well as among the impoverished plebes. The respective merits of the blues, the greens, the reds, and the yellows were the subject of heated discussions, and Caius Nepus was glad to note that more than a suspicion of antagonism was aroused between his guests in the deference of their respective choice. He only took a very cursory part in the discussion, putting in a word here and there, where contradiction or approval might further inflame overheated tempers, and he ordered his slaves to pour the wine with a free hand, and himself was ready to pledge every one of his guests over and over again for as long as they were ready to drink. Inside the room the heat had become excessive, the evening air only entered through narrow windows, and the gentle breeze did no more than fan the flames of the oil lamps, or make the petals of dying roses tremble and fall. The noise grew louder and louder as the fumes of heady wines obscured the brains of these makers of future empires. Slaves were called for loudly to undo the tunics and to help cast off all but the necessary garments. Every face round the table now was flushed and moist, every forehead streaming with perspiration. Escanes, goblet in hand, was singing a ribald song, the chorus of which was taken up by the group of young men nearest to him. The older ones were making insane bets and driving preposterous bargains over horses and slaves. By the time that the slaves had returned with the tablets, the praetorian prefect had cause to be satisfied with the temper of his guests. Coarse jests and drunken oaths were heard more often than whispered serious talk. The names of popular gladiators seemed of more account than those of future Caesars. Curls were dishevelled, and laurel crowns awry. The silken draperies on the couches had become tattered rags, and the cushions were scattered all about the floor. Debris of crystal vases littered the table, and bunches of dying flowers were tossed about by unsteady hands. Given a little more time, a few more draughts of Sicilian wine, and all thoughts of voting for a future Caesar would be beyond the mental power of these degenerates, and drunken quarrels would turn to violent enmity. This... Caius Nepus had in mind when he took the tablets from the slaves, and threw them down with affected carelessness on the table before him. "'We cannot vote,' he said loudly, "'whilst Taurus Antinor is not here.' His words were even more potent than he had hoped. All that he had wanted was further delay, and most of his guests nodded approval with drunken solemnity, and then called for more wine. But Hortensius Martius, who, though he had drunk as heavily as others, had not joined in the ribald songs or the senseless orgy of shouts and of laughter, now jumped up with a violent oath. "'What hath Taurus Antinor to do with us?' he shouted at the top of his voice. "'Or we with Taurus Antinor! You do not intend, I trust, to raise a freed man to the Imperium and place the sceptre of Caesar in the hands of a descendant of slaves!' He was trembling with such unbridled fury, his eyes glowed with the lust of such deadly hate, that instinctively the ribald songs and a moderate laughter were hushed, and eyes, veiled with the film of intoxication, were turned wonderingly upon him. But Caius Nepus was smiling blandly. The ire of Hortensius pleased him, even though he did not understand its cause. "'Nay, as to that,' he said, "'are we not all descended from slaves? Taurus Antinor hath the ear of the plebes. Doth suggest, O Hortensius, that he also hath the ear of dear Flavia Augusta?' He had shot this arrow into the air, little guessing how hard and truly it would hit. Hortensius was making vigorous efforts to curb his temper, biting his lips until tiny drops of blood slowly trickled down his chin. But he felt that the mocking eyes of his host were upon him, 
and had just a sufficiency of reason left in him to see through the machinations of Caius Nepos. He would not hold himself up to ridicule now before those who should prove his strong supporters in the future. His proposal had not yet been put to the vote, and he did not mean to alienate his adherents by an insane show of maniacal rage. "'Of that,' he said in response to his host's taunt, in a voice quivering with the mighty effort of control, "'of that there is but little fear.' The Augusta is too proud to look with favour on a stranger. As for me, I would sooner ask Escanes to plunge his dagger in my throat than I would serve the empire under the seizureship of Taurus Antinor. Thou canst recall thy vote as thou thinkest best, said Caius Nepos with calm urbanity. And those who were sufficiently sober nodded approval with solemn gravity. Nay, here interposed Marcus Ancreus with stern reproof. Before we begin to vote, let us be agreed on one point. Let us be prepared to swear by the gods that we will adhere truly and loyally to the choice of the majority, and, if, as meseems is likely, we agree that the unknown future husband of dear Flavia Augusta become the ruler of us all, then we must swear to proclaim him the Caesar with one accord. Else doth our voting become a mere farce. Friends, before ye vote, are you ready to take this oath? Aye, aye, came from almost every mouth round the table but they nodded like automatons, with heavy heads that rolled on bowed shoulders and blurred eyes half-hidden behind closing lids. "'I'll not swear allegiance to Taurus Antinor,' persisted Hortensius obstinately. "'Dost think it likely that Augusta favours him?' asked the host ironically. "'No, but—then what hast thou to fear?' "'As for me,' interposed young Eschines in a thick voice broken by hiccoughs, I am ready to swear as Marcus Ancrius directs. If we are not satisfied with the new Caesar, whoever he may be, my dagger will not rust in the meanwhile. I can easily wet it again. Even as these last cynical words left the young man's lips, there came from outside a noise of much shouting and shuffling of naked feet, and anon the sound of a voice, loud and harsh, asking for leave to speak with the Praetorian prefect. Caius Nephus paused, tablets in hand. Strangely enough, the voice, though well known, seemed to have a sobering effect on all these Libyan ebullient tempers. Marcus Ancreus, who was the most calm among them all, threw a quick glance of inquiry on his host. One or two furtive glances were exchanged. A look that was half ashamed crept into some of the faces, and there were hurried, whispered calls to the slaves to bring the bags of ice. Quickly the tunics were readjusted, and an attempt made at re-establishing some semblance of decorum round the table. Caius Nepos was giving hastily whispered directions to the waiting maids. "'Pull that coverlet straight. Quick!' he ordered. "'And those cushions. Pick them off the ground. That broken vase. Set it aside. There. Try and hide that wine stain with the fresh cloth.' And all the while rapid, eager questions flew from mouth to mouth. "'Wilt tell him at once, O Caius Nepos? Or, "'Wilt ply him with wine first. T'were safer.' "'Nay, nay!' said Eschines, whose wrists and ankles were being bathed. "'That would take too long. "'Taurus Antinor hath a strong head, "'and I, for one, could not keep sober another half-hour. "'Dost know if he is one with us?' "'was the query that came from every side. "'Hortensius Martius alone had remained silent. "'He did not call either for water or for ice. "'It was his hatred that had sobered him, "'making the lines of his face set and hard, "'causing the flush to die from his cheeks "'and leaving them ashy pale. "'Dost know if he is at one with us?' "'reiterated Augustus Valerio impatiently. He had ordered a slave to hold lumps of ice to his forehead, whilst Philippus Decius, lying next to him, was having perfume rubbed into the back of his neck. 
"'We must look stern and deliberate,' said Ancreus. "'Dost know, O Caius Nepus, if he is at one with us?' "'We must enlist him,' rejoined the latter hurriedly. "'He holds the plebes, and without his help opposition might become difficult. "'A word from him to the crowd, and the new Caesar is assured of peace within the city.' "'Then do thou tell him what has been decided,' said one of the others, "'who was busy smoothing his tangled hair. "'No, no!' whispered cautious Ancreus the elder. "'Have a care, thou! Caius Nepus must probe him ere thou speakest. "'Tell him not of Escanes' dagger,' added another hurriedly. "'Speak of abdication,' said the older man, "'of anything that comes in thy mind. "'Some men there are who—' "'But he had no time to explain his meaning further, "'for the next moment Taurus Antinor stepped into the room. "'End of chapter 8.'